0: Well, most of you know that we have been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And boy, have we picked up some things along the way. Possibly the most striking thing about Ecclesiastes thus far and really to the end is that it's not altogether what we would call a hopeful book. And at the same time, we probably need to just go ahead and say that that's why some of you are here this morning, because you're in need of some hope. So if that's you, you're in the wrong place. Um, Because we're doing Ecclesiastes again today, chapter 8. All right, nobody's walking out, I don't think. Um, But, no, I'm, I'm just kidding, hope is going to abound this morning. And we are going to see some hope from Ecclesiastes, but largely we're going to see some hope from other parts of Scripture. All right, if you haven't been with us, as we've been working through, you also need to know that Ecclesiastes has shown itself to be really just a slap in the face. It's intended to tell us all to wake up from our daydream. You see, we're all living this kind of illusion that our lives, that what we do, that, it, that ultimately matters. But Ecclesiastes comes along and says, violently, it, it, it doesn't. Your life, the things that you're trying to accomplish, actually don't matter. Because like billions of people that have come before you and me, one of these days we're going to die. And all of our work and all of our love and frustration and longing and all of those unanswered questions that we have, it's all going to die with us along with everyone else that we know, and we're all going to be forgotten forever. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Now, we know from reading the New Testament, and Jeremy has brought this out wonderfully, that you know, a life lived in obedience to the Lord does have lasting impact, that it does matter if we are living our lives in worshipful obedience to our Father, that there's reward for that obedience, for our love that we have for one another and for our neighbor, that there's reward for our worship-filled lives toward God. But only if we're living with that mentality, right? Everything else, Ecclesiastes tells us, it's all for naught. But there's something else that I want us to remember as we're reading this book, that the writer of this book, maybe it was King Solomon, we think probably it was, although he perceived and understood much, and he was an exceedingly wise person, there were still things that were hidden from Solomon because he was not God. Despite all of his knowledge, power, and wealth, after all, Solomon was just a man. And although he did have really true wisdom from God, he lived in a time prior to God's most full expression of wisdom. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't know what we know today, or what we can know today. He did know and trust the character of God, but he didn't have as clear of a picture of what God was going to do as we have and has been revealed later in Scripture. And look, it's not because we're modern or because we live in a scientific age or because we have Google. All right, look, I think that Solomon would have geeked out over all of the technological advances, the scientific discoveries that we've made. But his big question, such as, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do evil evil people use and abuse others and get away with it? Is there any ultimate justice? These big questions that Solomon had still remain unanswered. Over the centuries, from all over the globe, university professors, philosophers, religious leaders, they have all wrestled with these big questions, and they have brought us no closer to any satisfactory answers. I'm going to oversimplify things a bit, but Western culture largely has just said, look, we don't know the answer to those questions. Parpe diem, right? Latin for seize the day. More recently, it's YOLO, right? Drake for you only live once, right? And the idea here is you just make the most of what you have, the opportunities that you have, the days that you have, to live life to the fullest and don't worry about the big question. Eastern culture has largely kind of dealt with these things in terms of karma, right? You do well, you do things that are good in this life, and whatever the next life looks like, You'll be rewarded for good or for bad, depending on you know it's, it all. It all corresponds, but we know from God's word that has been revealed to us that all of these ideas are at best just scraps of truth, and at worst they're distortions of the truth or just outright falsehoods, and they're intended to lead us away from a living God who is personal, who connects with us, who loves us, who is involved in our lives. And He has sent the person of Jesus to actually rescue us from this broken world. That's the God of Scripture. The New Testament book of Colossians puts it this way. There is a mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but now it has been revealed to His saints. That's you and me who trust Jesus. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What God was going to do through Jesus was hidden from the author of Ecclesiastes, Christ in us. Yes, see, we do have the hope of glory. We do have the hope of everlasting impact when we walk in accordance and obedience to Jesus, His Spirit that's powerfully working within us. We can have meaning in our lives when we operate in that way. Ecclesiastes gives us permission to ask and wrestle with gut-wrenching authenticity those really hard questions, while other places in Scripture, like Colossians, are going to plainly point us to the answers, and they point us to Christ. So we're going to see more of that today. Um, but we're going to be in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, Ecclesiastes has several recurring themes, and Jeremy's already dealt with many of them, and he's done a great job, and so we're not going to focus on on some of those things that have already been covered, but just a few of the things that stand out that are kind of new. All right, so verse 1, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. It's going to be helpful for us to understand this verse in the next few, if we think about Joseph here. You might remember from Exodus, if you were with us or if you've read that book before. Um, we, we we covered Exodus here um, at Redeemer, I don't know, last year, I think. <clears throat> but in Exodus, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was having dreams. And it, it weren't these random dreams about his teeth or his hair falling out. It, they, they were dreams that he knew had some, some vast importance, and they haunted him. And he knew somehow that he had to get an interpretation, so he starts looking throughout his kingdom for someone that he can you know, tell these dreams to, and a wise person could give him an interpretation of those dreams. Now Joseph, by God's provision, by God's providence... He actually wasn't an Egyptian, but he was in Egypt at that time. He was able to give Pharaoh the interpretation of those dreams. And he was able to counsel Pharaoh well, accordingly. And so at that time, Egypt was able to navigate and manage this severe famine while the rest of the world was languishing in hunger. So that's what we need to have in mind as we're reading these verses, because uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking to a counselor, an advisor of the king. And so even on normal days, all heads of state, not just the king of Egypt, they all have to make these difficult decisions regarding complex issues that have far-reaching consequences. Ecclesiastes is just saying, look, if you can find a person that can help with that level of decision-making, that's a rare and precious thing. And that's someone that you find Things are going to go well for him. okay? And they did for Joseph. Joseph was the number two guy in all of Egypt because of his wisdom, because of his counsel, his interpretation back to Pharaoh. And he enjoyed being number two in the most powerful nation at that time on the planet. So with all that in mind, let's read verse 2. And now the author is speaking directly to this king's advisor. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence... Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps the king's command will know no evil thing, and the wise of heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Okay, for, for, in order for us to, to really understand this, we have to know that this word keep, when he says keep the, the, the king's command, here it doesn't mean obey, it means like guard or watch over, or protect the decisions of the king. So as the king's counselor, it is this incredibly weighty responsibility to help that king make the right call. And so he says, you can't just abandon your post if the king is about to haul off and make a bad decision. That's what he means by don't be hasty to leave the king's presence. At the same time, there's also a right way to try to influence that situation. When the king is about to do something terrible, the second part of his advice is don't take a stand in an evil cause. In other words, it's not going to go well for that advisor if you just brazenly disagree and call the king an idiot. Because at the end of the day, the king is going to do whatever he wants to do anyway, and if you offend him during that process, he might just take off your head. No, the counselor who is wise will wait for just the right time and he'll devise just the right way to be able to try and manage to change the king's mind. There's an art, there's nuance here. And for the person who is able to do that, things are going to go well, right? Your face will shine. But now hold on. Remember, this is Ecclesiastes. And so we can't stop... Here, looking at this, with this glass is, glass is half-full mentality, all right? The glass is definitely half-empty. Look here, let's keep reading. Um, there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has the power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So don't get your hopes up. Just because a king might find that one in a million wise counselor, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to follow his advice so that all of us peons underneath are actually going to have good lives as a a result. Okay, this might start to sound familiar to you, okay? We don't live under a king, but every one of us lives under imperfect, broken, selfish people who are in authority over us in some way or another, right? If not a king, then a president, a governor, congressman or congresswoman who's writing laws, or a judge who's making decisions that affect everyone, right? This is our day, and it has been a hotbed maybe more so than any other time in our lifetime many of our leaders are corrupt and inept look every now and then we have the opportunity to live under somebody right under a leader who's servant hearted capable responsible but if we're honest that's that's the exception it's not the rule much of the time if not most of the time we don't live under those people here's the thing And it doesn't even matter if they have a wise advisor. There's no shortage of people who know wisdom. And a lot of those people are actually speaking to our leaders, but there's no guarantee. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. There's no guarantee that they're actually going to even listen. They may not listen to the voters. You might call your local congressman, and they may not listen to you. They don't have to. They still have the opportunity to abuse us, and they do. They might rob us through unnecessary taxes or wasteful spending. They might send us to war. They might continue to gain more and more control over the details of our lives. They might ask us to work more and more while they make themselves rich off of our efforts. Or they're just going to make dumb decisions that we're all going to have to live with. And in some extreme cases, they might make some decisions that would even cause some of us to die. And although that extreme thing is not maybe a daily occurrence in our country for everybody in our time, for much of human history, and today certainly in other nations, that's exactly what happens. And it's not all that uncommon. People suffer terribly and die because of ambition and greed of their leaders. So, for some of you, your blood is boiling right now, right? Because you're watching Fox News and you're watching CNN and you're paying attention to what's going on. And you're just constantly frustrated and angry about the things that are happening in our country and all over the world. And I want you to know that if you're angry, it's okay. You should be. It's okay to be upset, to be frustrated about the things that are happening, because we should feel that way when people are oppressed by their leaders who should be shepherding them. It's right for you to feel angry. But listen, Scripture does not call us to stay there and boil in anger. And it's for our own good that we don't, and it's also for God's glory. So if you're like me and you need to see good leadership, we have to look at Jesus because if you don't if you don't stop looking at all that's wrong and start looking at something that's right and perfect, you're going to become embittered. Because you're going to have these high ex- expectations for sinful people and they're not going, to live to, you're not going to live up to them, and you're just going to become bitter because it's not going to change until Jesus returns. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. Here's our hope. Okay? Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, that's what we're looking forward to, to that time when our perfect, servant hearted leader will be elevated to the position that he rightfully has earned deserves, and can carry out. He's going to rule over all the nations of the earth, and He's going to do it justly, competently, unselfishly, according to that humble character that He demonstrated on the cross. Jesus is the perfect leader. He's the one that we long for today, and we have to look forward to that time when He takes that position, fulfills that role, Because if we don't, we're just going to get mad and we're going to stay that way. We're going to look forward to that time in the future. And in the meantime, look, we're going to pray for our leaders. That they might be saved. That they might come come alongside Jesus and become like Him. He's a good model for leadership. We're going to pray for that and we're going to vote. And some of you might actually even run for office. Go for it. Model Jesus in that. But in the meantime, ultimately what we're doing is we're resting in a future time when Jesus will be that perfect leader that we long for. Okay, back to Ecclesiastes, verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Um, It sounds like there's some contradiction here, you know. He's saying, look, you know, evil people, you know, they win the day, but, you know, they don't. We'll, We'll get there. Okay, he's describing some religious people who use their spiritual persona as a covering to do evil, okay? We've talked about government officials. Now we're just talking about religious people. Now every religion, every denomination has some bad eggs. Most of them get exposed in this lifetime, right? And they're removed from their positions. It's public. It's shameful. It's terrible. Um, and and it, ha- it happens while they're alive, and we hear about it. And uh, just to illustrate this kind of thing, um, you know, you might think about the widespread abuse um, of the Catholic Church. It was revealed, uh, began to be revealed in, in the 1980s. Um, all throughout the '90s, early 2000s, horrible, horrific things that were done. Um, more recently, you might think—just so you know—I'm not, you know, picking on the Catholic Church. Um, author, apologist, Ravi Zacharias. Turns out, powerful ministry for decades, but for at least the last 10 years of his ministry, um, he was found to be- have been involved in some egregious. Terrible sin, where he was abusing people that he should have been shepherding. And it went on, and it went on, and went on. So those men, those priests, were respected in their communities. Zacharias was praised literally all over the world, and yet daily for years they carried out their ministries. This is what Ecclesiastes is saying when it says, they went to the holy place and they were praised for their deeds, but they were Wicked. daily for years these men carried out their ministries at the same time they were doing these heinous things behind the scenes. This is what Ecclesiastes is lamenting and it's asking this question. How can God let these things go on for so long? And because there's no quick recourse, these people are even emboldened to continue in this sin and just keep doing evil things. Well, um, Ecclesiastes does offer a glimmer of hope here. It says this. Um, it says, look, I'm wrestling with this thing, that these people are are doing what they're doing, and yet I trust the character of God. Even though He's not executing justice now, I know at some point the wicked will get what they deserve. Okay. So the author of Ecclesiastes has this shadow, this idea of God's character but we have revelation chapter 20 so you can turn there if you want it, it it paints a very vivid picture of this judgment this execution of justice that we long for this is verse 11 then i saw a great white throne on him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and i saw the dead great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And then in verse 15, it says this, if, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the, into the lake of fire. We see that there is a time where God will execute justice for every evil deed. And we can rest in that. As you wrestle with these things that you're seeing in our world, you can rest in that. God is going to execute justice. But you might still have this lingering question. You might still be thinking, yeah, but why does God let it happen anyway? Why does He let it persist? Why doesn't He just take them out right then and there? He's God. He could do it. He could stop this egregious evil right now. If he wanted to. And I say to you, hold on. Is that really the God that you want? Is that the God that Scripture describes? Because haven't you and I also had some dark moments? When it wasn't those terrible people over there who were doing those terrible things, but it was you and me and our weakness when we were doing some things? Did we want the lightning bolt then? Is that what we want? No, we are grateful for God's patience, for His grace, for His kindness, for His waiting for us, for us having the opportunity to repent and turn. When it's us, we need that. We want that. So we have to be careful not to just say, God, strike them down, because we are in need of grace also. Look, God's going to pour out His, perfect just, His perfectly just wrath on evildoers in the future. But I want to tell you something else, and this might really blow your mind. Some evildoers are not going to experience that wrath because God has already executed justice on a substitute. And these are the ones, by the way, whose names are written in the book of life. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us about this. This is Paul writing to evildoers in the first century. And uh, not necessarily to the evildoers who have you know, uh, sinned very publicly and have been shamelessly brought down from their positions. These are run-of-the-mill evildoers like you and me. And they're probably sitting in a church service in Corinth. And here's what he says, We implore you, evildoers, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was our substitute. There are some of us who love and trust and believe in Jesus. We're not going to have to answer for our sin. And it's not because we're better. It's because Jesus answered for it on our behalf. He received that wrath that we deserve. So when we're struggling with evil and the suffering it causes in our world, we can find solace in two places. First, God's already punished sin on the cross. And so now, whenever we see someone who's committing these awful, terrible sins, we can pray for them. And when we're praying for them to know and trust Jesus, we're not only wanting them to receive the grace that we've received, do you realize that we're also asking for justice to be served? We are. We're asking for justice because that's what God did. At the same time that He's extending grace, He's also executing justice on Jesus. And so both things are satisfied. God is loving and forgiving and forgives, and at the same time, He is just. The second way that we can find solace is to know that, look, people who don't turn, who don't repent in this lifetime, their evil deeds will be punished. Revelation 20 tells us that. Okay, one more reading from Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. Look, this is an age old question. Um, and to illustrate it, let me just say this. Um, following the horrific events of September 11, 2001, you might remember that people were asking, where was God on that terrible day? And what they're really asking is this. If God is real, why did he let those 3,000 good, innocent people die at the hands of evil men? Another example. Some of you might also remember the earthquake that occurred the day after Christmas in 2004. Um, This one didn't get nearly as much press, but that earthquake resulted in a tidal wave in the Indian Ocean, and it killed, in a matter of hours, over 230,000 people in Indonesia and Sumatra. And so we, along with Ecclesiastes, are asking, why do bad things happen to, to good people? The people who were killed by that that tidal wave—men, women, and children, everybody—I mean, it didn't—it didn't select; it didn't select out the evil, you know, the most evil ones in that land. It just killed everybody. We, and we have this idea that, like, look, shouldn't things like this is what Ecclesiastes is saying? Shouldn't things like that happen to really bad people? And shouldn't the you know the good people shouldn't they be spared those tragedies? And we want this so badly when we see these events occur that we'll even start to say, some people will even start to say some pretty dark and judgmental things. Um, I remember when that, after that happened, um, that people, you know, someone saying, look, the reason why God did that is because those people in Indonesia, well, they're not Christians. Wow. Or whenever Katrina hit in 2000, um, oh, I forgot what year it was, but when Katrina hit New Orleans, I remember people saying, look, God hates all the licentiousness that happens on Bourbon Street, and that's why that happens. We want to be able to say bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, but Ecclesiastes reminds us that's just not the case. And the problem also with this kind of thinking, frankly, is Jesus and what he says about this issue. I want to read from Luke 13. Um, Jesus is, is just, he's teaching And it says that there were some, this is verses 1 through 5, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, listen to this, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you you will all likewise perish. The events that we're reading about here in Luke, these were the 9-11 and the, the tsunami events of that day. Did you catch that? There's these people who were victimized, by murderers. And Jesus' followers are asking about this. And they're basically saying, look, didn't those people deserve it? And then it also talks about this this tower that fell, this tragedy that happened. And Jesus is saying, look, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that tower fell because those people must have done something really bad and they deserved it. They're just like us. And that's what Ecclesiastes, when it says, look, there's nothing new under the sun, that's part of what he's talking about. Those events that happened then and people are asking, why did this happen? Those things happened in our lifetime too. Just different events, different people, different victims. But it's all the same and we all want to paint it the same way. But what the Bible tells us is look, there actually are no really good people. And here's what I mean by that. Sure, by the grace of God, there are some of us who are really trying to walk with the Lord. When we sin, we repent, and we turn, and by God's grace, we're really trying to please Him. But what the Bible says is that those people are way fewer than we might think, and at some level, and this is repeated all throughout Scripture, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's Romans chapter 3. And that applies to me and to you. There is not one righteous, not even one. Now that's a reference to Psalm 14, and Psalm 14 says more. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good, not even one. So from a human perspective, sure, some people are more moral, some do more good, they do less evil than others. But from God's perspective, and this is what Jesus is saying, every human being who has ever lived, save Jesus, has failed to meet God's standard of perfection. That's you and me. And we're not even close to hitting the mark. We all have flaws. We all have selfishness and sin that we cannot shape. And as you begin to read more of Scripture, you know, it says it plainly there, but as you begin to read about the, the, the heroes of the faith even, what you're going to find out as you read about those events and those decisions that they make, man, they make some really bad, God-dishonoring decisions pretty routinely. And even those who are lifted up as leaders in the faith, man, they've got some really, really heinous sin None of us would be innocent before the Lord. They're sinners. And the Scripture is just like you and me. So Ecclesiastes is saying, look, it just doesn't seem right that the obviously wicked and, you know, are, are blessed with long life and that those who are trying to honor God and just you know, just make a living and just do good, that sometimes they get a raw deal. Sometimes they get sick. Sometimes they suffer. Sometimes they, um, they die young. It's a difficult thing to understand, and that's why Ecclesiastes calls it a vanity. It's a hard thing to grasp, because it disagrees with our sense of justice. But Jesus answers that question. He says, actually, we all deserve death. Any calamity that you see should be a reminder of our own depravity, our own frailty, and our need for the Lord. All of these things should direct us back to God, to our, and it should remind us of our own weakness and need for Him. So we had better get right with the Lord. And the only way to do that is to trust Jesus. John 3.16 reads this, this way. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture is going to remind us of the broken world, and it reminds us of our broken selves. But it doesn't stop there. It's going to point us to Jesus, who is the fix. He began to fix that, all the brokenness in us and in the world on the cross, and He is going to complete that work when He returns. He's in the process right now by His Spirit, of changing us into people who look more, act more, think more, feel more, worship more like Him. He is working to be the fix. But we have to trust Him. We have to let Him work. We have to embrace that work. And then we can trust that in the future, all of that work will be complete, knowing that this actually is not our home. All the things that happen here, the corruption, the abuse, these things are temporary and we can trust that at the end of the age, things are going to be made right. So um, the, the the band is about to come up and uh, they're going to give us an opportunity to worship in response to his word this morning. I would ask that you would do that in whatever way the Spirit is leading. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that when things are confusing and things don't seem right, that You have provided answers. That Ecclesiastes is going to ask some really hard questions. And we're going to wrestle because we see it reflecting the world that we live in. But all the answers are found in Your Son. Lord, will You help us to trust Jesus, that all of our angst and frustration, our despair might turn instead into hope that we might rest in what you're doing now and what you're going to do, that we might not try to make this place our home, but instead look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. We ask all of this for our ultimate good, for our joy and peace, and we ask it for your glory because you have been working and you deserve all the praise. Amen.